Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the uh, pastors here. Hope that you are doing well. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1, as we continue our line-by-line study through the book of Romans. While you're turning there, I want to start with a, uh, a little illustration. So I hate wrapping Christmas gifts, okay? We just got done with Christmas season. I hate wrapping Christmas gifts. One, because I'm not a girl, but two, because every time I wrap Christmas gifts, it looks awful. If you get a package from me, it looks very suspicious, like it may or may not contain anthrax, and so part of it's torn, and it's all beat up, and the paper's not long enough, and so I hate wrapping Christmas gifts. There are only two parts that I enjoy about wrapping Christmas gifts. The first is this, when you start to cut that wrapping paper, and then the scissors catch, and it just begins to slide. Is that not the best feeling? I love that feeling. If I had the option between that feeling and a million dollars, I mean, I'd take the million dollars, but it's a good feeling. It's a good feeling to have. The other part that I like is when you're done with the wrapping paper, you get to use the wrapping paper too. And that is better than whatever gift you're giving. It can be an instrument. You can use it as a telescope. You can hit your friends on the head with it. That's the best part of wrapping gifts. So what I do each year when it comes time for Christmas and I have to wrap gifts for my wife is I wrap them Zach style, which is in a bunch of weird different ways. So I will take one of her gifts, cover it in duct tape, put some more duct tape on it, put some zip ties on it, and be like, Merry Christmas. Good luck getting into your gift, right? Or I'll take like an actual blanket, cover her gifts with the blanket, and then staple it together. And so on Christmas morning, she's like pulling apart a blanket. She's like, did you put staples in our blanket? I'm like, ha-ha, you didn't know what gift you got, did you? Right? That's how I wrap gifts. One year, I just took a bunch of strips of paper and just taped them all over her gift, You could see what the gift was, but it looked like this weird, hairy wig gift or something. And this year, she decided to put an end to that. So she came up and she said, this is the sentence she said. She said, Zach, it's Christmas. Don't wrap my gifts like you always do. Wrap them the right way, okay? Now, the reason I tell you that is that's kind of the structure of the text that we're going over this morning. What the Apostle Paul is going to do is he's going to give us a theological truth, a theological command, and then he's going to give us a negative, don't do something, and then a positive, therefore do something. And the same way that my wife said, it's Christmas, don't wrap them the idiot way you always wrap them and instead wrap them the right way, the Apostle Paul's gonna say you're a living sacrifice, therefore don't do this, be conformed to the world, but rather do this by the transformation, the renewal of your mind. So keep that in mind, uh, the structure of this text as we get into it. Let me pray for us and then we will jump into verse one. Almighty God, I ask that you would give us grace, that you would protect us from the enemy, that you would uh, help us see the truths of your word. Uh, I pray that this would not just be a text that's familiar to us, but it might take on uh, a new power this morning as we see what's said, we see how transformation really comes. And so we love you and we thank you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's start in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let's look at the first part of that. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. I want you to focus on one particular word there, and it's the word therefore, okay? It's the word therefore. That's a sign that the Apostle Paul is continuing on from something he's already talked about. So what we have to ask is, why is the word therefore, what is it therefore? That's what we have to ask, okay? Before the Apostle Paul is going to give us commands, he is going to give us theology, 
Okay? He's going to give us theology. That's really important. As we transition into this next section of Romans, chapters 12 through 16, there are a lot of commands. There are a lot of ethical commands, a lot of commands about morality, etc. But you have to keep in mind that before Paul gives us commands, he spends 11 chapters giving us Jesus. He spends 11 chapters giving us the gospel. He's talked about justification by faith and how we can't earn our salvation and how we're born totally depraved. And he's talked about election and righteousness and union with Christ and all of that. Then... Only after doing all of that does he say, therefore, now here are some commands. You have to keep that in mind. Christianity is not, if you do these things, God will accept you. It's that God has accepted you in Christ alone, therefore, do these things. So as we go over commands today, because the command of this text is simply to walk in holiness, you need to realize God is not just asking you to do this and conjure it up in your own strength. He's saying, in light of everything I've said, in light of chapters 1 through 11, therefore, walk in righteousness. The Bible doesn't do it like this. So Romans doesn't say, conjure up the strength to jump out of an airplane. That would be very scary. Rather, Romans will spend 11 chapters saying, this is what a parachute is. This is why you need a parachute. This is how a parachute works. This is a model of parachute that always opens. It will never fail. This parachute will neither leave you nor forsake you. This is the best parachute. Therefore, now jump out of the plane. Now jump out of the plane. So notice this flow that we have even in the book of Romans that there is theology, knowledge of who God is and what he has done in Christ, which leads to worship, which is what Tim talked about last week, which then leads to a transformed life, which is what we're talking about today. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Sometimes when the Apostle Paul says brothers, he's referring to fellow Jews. In this case, though, he's talking about Christians. So if you want to translate that brothers and sisters, it would apply equally to women as well. He's addressing Christians. Dear Christians, this is what this looks like. And notice the last little phrase here where he says, by the mercies of God. I love that. You cannot get away from grace in the New Testament. Even when the Apostle Paul is giving us a command, he even qualifies it with by the mercies of God. Only because of what God has already done for you, only because God has already done the stuff, in light of God's mercy, therefore you walk in righteousness. There's never a hint of legalism here with the Apostle Paul. Now look at the next phrase of the verse. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. If you have a pen, underline that part of the verse in your Bible. That is the central part of these two verses today. This is the main theme. Everything else that's said is going to qualify what that means. Okay, there's one point to this sermon, as every sermon should have at least one point. This text has one point, and everything else that's said will modify that, that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Let me give you some other passages. Romans 6, 13. Do not present your members, that means body parts, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness, or for righteousness. Romans 6, 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Just a quick comment on that last passage. This is one of those passages that people use out of context all the time. They'll say, your body's a temple, so you shouldn't, you know, smoke a cigar. 
or your body's a temple, so you shouldn't eat at McDonald's, or your body's a temple, so you shouldn't get a tattoo of a cross on your temple, or you'll get some guy that's geeked up about CrossFit, and he's like, your body's a temple, so get swole for Jesus, or whatever. That's not what this passage is about at all. This passage is not at all about physical health. Yes, take care of your body. We get that from other passages. When the Bible says your body's a temple, here's what it means, to walk in holiness and avoid sin because the Spirit dwells within you. So we would say something like this, don't have greed in your heart because your body's a temple. Don't look at pornography because your body's a temple. That's the context here, okay? So what this text is saying is simply this. This is not a difficult text to understand. It's just difficult to apply. The text is simply saying, walk in holiness. Walk in righteousness. That's all it's saying, okay? Now look at this phrase. There's an interesting phrase here that sounds like an oxymoron. It says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's something that would have popped out to the first century author, right? Because they're used to sacrifices being things that die. In the Old Testament, you would offer sacrifices as part of worship. Sometimes you would do that for atonement for sin. Other times you would do it as a grain offering or a free will offering or a wave offering. There are all these different things that sacrifices could be used for, but they're all this type of worship. In Christianity, you have no more dead sacrifices being made. Jesus has died on our behalf, okay, and was raised. Now what we're to do is we're to be living sacrifices. We're to be living sacrifices. Even at your conversion, when you die to the old man, that's not a sacrifice. That would have been a spotted lamb. That would have been a lamb with blemish. But rather, you're raised to walk in newness of life. What he's saying is sacrifice is no more killing a thing at the altar. Sacrifice today is a lifestyle. That worship is not just what you're doing today as you're in church or singing or reading your Bible. That there is a way to not flip someone off in traffic to the glory of God that there is a way to talk to your spouse kindly to the glory of God, that we are to be living sacrifices. So I don't know if you've seen this or not, but our baptistry, you'll see it after service because we're celebrating a baptism, our baptistry is in the shape of a coffin, okay? Do you know why that is? It's not because we're like especially goth. None of our elders shop at Hot Topic or something like this. The reason that we have a coffin-shaped baptistry is because of Romans 6, where it talks about that you die to your old life and you have new life in Christ, okay? So the Apostle Paul is going to say, you don't belong to you. You are a sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice, but a living sacrifice. And he has to remind us of this because as it's often been quipped, the problem with living sacrifices is they have a tendency to crawl off the altar. And so we have to avoid that, okay? Think of all that it means to be a sacrifice. Imagine being a lamb or a goat or whatever tied up, getting ready to be killed on the altar. You have no more hopes of your own. You have no more dreams of your own. You have no rights. You own no property. Your sole job is to be offered to God. That's your only purpose. That's what this text is saying about us, that once you come to know Christ, you have no dreams that are not submitted to Christ. You have no hopes that are not submitted to Christ. Your money is submitted to Christ. Your marriage is submitted to Christ. Your sexuality is submitted to Christ. Your hobbies are submitted to Christ. You own nothing. You're there to be used for worship, period. That's what this text is saying. That's what this text is saying. You see a microcosm of this in uh, marriage. So there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 7 that says, the wife's body does not belong to her, but to her husband. Now, is that not the best passage in the Bible? That's my life verse. That's my life verse. But the passage goes on to say, but the husband's body doesn't belong to him, but also to the wife. There's this idea of ownership, okay? There's this idea of ownership. When I married my wife, Katie, I gave up some of the rights and things that I wanted to do in living for me, and now I live to serve another person, okay? Do you see my haircut? I hate my haircut. Do you know why I have this haircut? Because Katie likes it. I think I look like an idiot, but Katie likes this haircut. That's why I have it. 
My body doesn't belong to me, so I don't get a say. This shirt that I'm wearing, Katie picked out. I said, which of these shirts should I wear? And I wanted to wear a different one. And she said, wear that one. And I said, oh, okay. I'm a sacrifice, a living sacrifice for her. Do you see my beard? Do you think I like my beard? You bet I like my beard. That's something Katie and I agree on. But if she wanted it gone, it would be gone. Shh, don't tell her, right? Because my life is not just lived for me, it's lived for her. I'm a sense a living sacrifice. I have to pay bills and I have to work a job and I have to ask her how she's doing and I have to connect with her emotionally and I have to help her with the kids and I have to do all these things because I don't belong to me. I'm a living sacrifice. Now think about how much more true that is when you belong to the infinite Trinitarian God. That God owns us. He owns every part of us. We don't belong to ourselves. Now look at the passage where it says to present your, look at the word bodies. Let me say something about this real quick and then I want to explain what it means. I want to say something that's true theologically and then I want to say specifically what this text means in this passage. Okay? You do not own you. You do not belong to you. Okay? There is a popular idea, and this is just in the heart of humanity, but we especially see it in culture, that this is my life. This is my body, or this is a woman's body. You can't tell someone what to do with their body. It's your life, your money. Be what you want to be. Do what you want to do. That is not Christian. Biblically, you don't own you. There's a bunch of people that own you before you do. God owns you, first and foremost, because he created you. If you're a Christian, he has redeemed you, so he owns you twice, because he's not only created you, he's purchased you. We just saw in 1 Corinthians 7 that your spouse owns your body. There's a sense in which the government, to a small extent, owns your body. They can draft you. They can send you off to war to die. They can lock you in prison. If you don't believe me, go try to walk around in the mall naked later and see how long it, gets, uh, it takes you before you're arrested. Try to commit suicide and see if the police are not called upon you. You have an obligation even to the government, even to society. I can't use my body to go assault somebody to go punch someone on the neck. I have, a, I have this requirement that I can even try not to spread disease. I can't go on an airplane if I have the flu, etc. You're like fourth in line for your body. Your body belongs to God and your spouse and a little bit to the government and a little bit to, and then finally to you, okay? So you don't have a right to do this. God tells you what your sexuality is in the Bible. God tells you what your gender is by what he has created you to be. It is your biological sex, okay? Your genetic code. Now, that's true theologically, but that's not the main thrust when he says the word body here, okay? What he is saying is he's saying all of you. That's what he means by bodies. Present all of you, your whole person, your whole being to God. You can't be a half sacrifice, okay? Notice that if you kill an animal, it doesn't half die. It either fully is a sacrifice or it's not. You are a full sacrifice to the glory of God, period. Do you have some area of your life that you've not submitted to Jesus? He's your Lord 95%, but there's 5% over here where you're not going to be a sacrifice there, okay? This is excellently summed up by an early church leader, a guy named John Chrysostom. He says this, and how is the body, it may be said, to become a sacrifice? Let the eye look on no evil thing, and it has become a sacrifice. Let the tongue speak nothing filthy, and it has become an offering. Let your hand do no lawless deed, and it has become a whole burnt offering. That's the idea. What does it mean to be a sacrifice? It simply means this. You avoid sin. It simply means that you walk in righteousness. It simply means that you stop separating worship time, which is Sunday morning, from the rest of your life because it's all worship time. It's all worship time. And then he ends by saying in this verse, 
which is your spiritual worship? I had a lot to say about this, but I've already cut 25 minutes out of my notes, so I'm just going to address this briefly. If you have your Bible there, by the word spiritual, write the word true. Write the word true. This is not the typical word that's used to say that something spiritual opposed to fleshly, which is pneumatikos. This is a Greek word, which is logikain, which means reasonable or fitting. The idea is this, that because of what God has done for you in Christ, it is fitting, it is reasonable, it is right to walk in holiness. Do you know what true worship looks like? It looks like walking in righteousness. You have to have two things to have true biblical worship. You have to have correct doctrine, and you have to have holiness. If you have correct doctrine, but you walk in unrighteousness, that's not true worship. If you're a really moral person, but you have false doctrine, like some moral Buddhist or something, that's not true worship. Biblically, you have to have correct doctrine, and you have to have holiness. Or as I heard a professor one time say, I don't care how high you jump in worship, as long as when your feet hit the ground, you walk like Jesus. Okay? That is the idea here. Verse 2a, we're going to get our negative command here. Do not be conformed to this world. 2a, do not be conformed to this world. That is going to be the command. Now, let me explain something here. This text is not saying that what is physical is bad or that the world in that sense is bad. This text is not saying you can't enjoy wine or a hike through the mountains or watching your kids laugh as they're running through the sprinklers or things like that. In fact, in Greek, the word world isn't even used. It's the Greek word age. It says do not be conformed to this age. The idea is do not be conformed to this sin-scarred world. Do not be conformed to what is unrighteous. Do not be conformed to what is evil. This is not saying physicality is bad. God made everything good. But don't be conformed to sin. Do not be conformed to this present evil age is the idea. It's similar to 1 John 2, 15 through 16, which says this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And you're like, oh, no. I used to love to play golf, but now I guess I can't because that's something in the world. No. It goes on to clarify what it means. For all that is in the world. Here's what you're to avoid. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. That's what this text is saying. It's not saying withdraw from the world. It's not saying withdraw from sinners. It's saying this. This is what this text means. Ready? Do not be conformed in your thinking and in your actions to the same thinking and actions of the lost sinful masses. Do not be conformed in your thinking or your actions to the same thinking and actions as the lost sinful masses. That's the idea of this text, okay? Christians are to be in the world, but not of it. And a lot of churches really err too far on one side or the other, okay? Some churches say, we want to so engage culture that we will sell out on Bible. We'll sell out on theology and we will look exactly like the culture. That's not the way you're supposed to go. Other churches say there's some bad things in culture, so let's avoid culture altogether. And they circle the wagons, and they create just this weird little Christian subculture, which is faithful to Scripture, except all those commands where it tells you to engage lost people and do missions. This is why most churches in America are plateaued or declining, is because some churches are faithful, but they're irrelevant. If you want to be used by God, you've got to be good at two things. You ready? Bible and culture. You have to be good at both. So we're not the emergent church, which sells out doctrine to look like culture. Nor are we some type of fundamentalist church that neglects culture and thinks everything in culture is bad. We're just going to have Christian movies, which are kind of cheesy, and Christian music, which is kind of awful, and Christian t-shirts that look ridiculous, and we'll never be around the sinnies, and that's how we'll keep from catching sin. That's not right either. You have to be in the world, but not of it. This is not a command to withdraw from culture. It's a command to stay away from sin. Okay? How engaged should you be with culture? Here's the answer. As engaged as you can be without sinning. 
as engaged as you can be without sinning. I'll give you an example. Everyone in here eating ribs? Raise your hand. If you, well, let's do it this way. Raise your hand if you've never eaten ribs. Oh, a little kid. Okay, that's okay. That's, that's understandable. Okay, you'll get them one day. Let me know. I'll, I'll take you to eat your first ribs or something. Send me an email. Okay. When you eat ribs, there are two parts. There's the meat, which is delicious, and there's the bone, which is not delicious. Okay? Now, what some people do, some churches do, is they say, eat, when you eat ribs, eat the meat and the bones. Just eat it all. Just consume everything culture has. Okay? That's not right. Those bones will break your teeth. On the other end of the spectrum, there are some churches that say, don't eat ribs because there's some bones in there. That's not right either. What you do is you eat the meat and you leave the bones. There are very few things in culture that are wholly bad or wholly good. Most things are a combination of both. And so your job as you're watching a movie, as you're reading a book, as you're listening to music is to have your Christian filter on where you say, this is true, this is not true. This is good, this is evil. You don't get to be passive as a Christian ever. You get to always have your Christian worldview filter on And as something comes in, you separate the meat from the bones. Let me give you some passages. John 17, 14 through 15, here's what Jesus says. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The problem is not culture or being around sinners. The problem is letting your thinking be conformed to that of culture or lost people. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. See, Zach, we're supposed to wave, stay away from all those sinners. So let's stay away from all those people that are sexually immoral. Look what the Apostle Paul goes on to say. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So this text doesn't say stay away from lost people. It actually says engage and be around lost people. Here's who you need to stay away from, someone who claims to be a Christian but is under church discipline because they're walking in immorality. Typically, we do the opposite. We tolerate sin in the church, but we stay away from the sinners out there. That's not what this text is saying to do. Now, look again at this passage. It says, do not be conformed to this world. Do you see that that verb is passive? He's not saying do not conform something. He's saying do not be conformed. There is a tendency when you live within a lost culture like we do that your thinking starts to mirror the thinking of those around you who don't know Christ. And this text is warning us against those things. It's warning us against those things. So here's what I want to do. I've created a list of a bunch of lies that you will be tempted to believe, that I'm tempted to believe. Some of these lies come out of culture. Some of these lies come directly from the enemy, okay? But I want to read this big list of lies so that you can be on guard against it, whether it comes directly from the enemy or from the enemy through an evil culture. We want you to be on guard for these things. So I'm just going to read a bunch of lies about what I'm about to say. None of these things are true. They're lies, but I want you to be aware of them because these are probably thoughts that you have had. These are probably things that you've thought about in your mind, whether you're being under spiritual attack or whether it's just something that comes down from culture. So let me just read these. Don't try to memorize them. Just hear what I'm saying, okay? This is a list of lies that you and I will be tempted to believe that we're going to be on guard against because we're not going to be conformed to the world. Here are the lies. If you're a Christian, God hates you. Maybe you're tempted to believe that. You hear that kind of in your head all the time. God hates you. You are going to hell. Despite the fact that you're a Christian, you hear this thought, I'm going to hell. It's going to hurt. There's no way I can avoid it. Sin brings more pleasure than Jesus. That is a lie you'll be tempted to believe. That sin brings more pleasure than Jesus. If you don't commit this sin, you will miss out on something really fun. You're getting older. You've got to sow your wild oats before you uh, you run out of time. If you don't commit this sin, you'll miss out on something really fun. 
You're dumb, fat, ugly, or nobody likes you. You should just kill yourself. Maybe that's a thought you've had. If you were really a Christian, then you wouldn't struggle like you do. You're the only one who doesn't get it. You're the only one who seems like you're faking it. Christianity's easy for everyone else. You deserve to do what you want. That is a lie from the enemy that you will hear often. It's your life. It's your body. It's your money. You're losing your mind or going crazy. You'll never get out of the struggle you're in. You have no hope. You should really care about what others think about you. That's a lie. You should really care what others think about you. Your truth is true for you, and my truth is true for me. That's a lie. Your identity is in your sexuality, gender, race, or how you have been a victim. That's not true biblically. Your identity is in Christ. All those other things pale in comparison to knowing Christ. You need to make your name great before you run out of time. People need to know your opinions on things. You social media warriors, people need to know your opinions on things. You can't keep resisting this sin. You'll eventually just give in to it. Your feelings matter more than facts. Tone is more important than content. That's a lie you'll be tempted to believe. You need to clean yourself up before you can come to Jesus. Or you need to clean yourself up before you can read your Bible. You need to clean yourself up before you can worship at church. Those are all lies to keep you from the one thing that will actually help you, which is Christ. You're a pervert. You're a homosexual. You would probably hurt a child if you could. You're an evil person, and that's just who you are. These are lies that the enemy will speak to you. Make as much money as you can so you can live a comfortable lifestyle. That's how you'll find peace from the chaos of life, having a comfortable lifestyle in your golden years. You're an idiot. What's wrong with you? Why can't you just get it? Your view is important. Make sure everyone knows how unique you are. You can't tell anyone about your struggles or temptations or they will think that you're weird. These are all lies. So what the Bible's going to say is, don't be conformed in your thinking to this world because that leads to actions that look like this world. But then we get verse 2b. Now we get the positive command. But be transformed by the renewal of your what? What's the word? Of your mind. Okay? <clears throat> now let me get on my soapbox. So here's my soapbox. I'm going to get on it to say something. Why do we at Parkway care so much about good theology? Why do we care about being precise and getting things perfect and getting things right and care about theology? Why do we do that? It's not because we're just proud. It's not because we're trying to be ivory tower theologians. It's not because we're trying to just be nitpicky. Do you know why? Because the Bible says getting that theology right is how you're transformed. That your theology, what you think about God, affects everything else, especially your worship. Okay? That's why we care about it. There is no being transformed in the Christian life by believing false things about God. You will hit a ceiling. That's why we do theological equipping. That's why we preach sermons that are just a little bit heady. That's why we're trying to get people over the bar instead of lowering the bar like most churches do is because you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. Christianity is this battle for truth. It's this battle for who owns what's right. Let me give you a million passages. Titus 2.1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. If you're not doing that, you're sinning. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. If you're teaching false doctrine, if you're holding to false things in your thinking, that does not honor God. Mark 7, 7, Jesus says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus just said there's a way that you try to worship him that's vain because it's not based on biblical theology. It's based on man-made theology. 2 Corinthians 10, 5, we destroy arguments. Notice that Christianity is a thinking man's religion. It is about logic and propositions and facts. We destroy arguments and take every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We take it captive. And to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Romans 16.1, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Some people think when you care a lot about theology, you're being divisive. 
This text says the opposite. It's those who are holding bad theology that are the ones that are divisive, not the ones that hold to correct theology. Ephesians 4.14, so that we may no longer be children. What does it mean to be spiritually immature, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine? Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed for lack of emotion. My people are destroyed for lack of church programming. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. In context, it's theological knowledge. They don't know right things about God, so they fall into idolatry. 1 Timothy 4.6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. In giving the requirements of an elder, Titus 1.9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word, look at that next phrase, as taught. You know what that means? It's not just that he knows a lot about the Bible. He has to teach it the way Christians have always held to it. That's what it means, the trustworthy word, as taught, as it's been handed down from the apostles. You can't come up with some new view of the Trinity or the new view of Christ or some weird view that nobody's ever held. Jesus promises that the gates of Hades will not overcome his church. And so one of the reasons I'm so passionate about church history is because I want to teach the trustworthy word as taught. I don't want to come up with some new view that no one's held. I want to come up with views that the church has held for 2,000 years. Trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, but test everything Hold fast to what is good, okay? I want to give you a little illustration I've used here before. The way transformation flows through the Christian life is through four H's. You ready? Ready for those four H's? Head, heart, hands, habitat. Let me say that again. Head, heart, hands, habitat. You have to believe something that's true biblically. It starts with the head. Then you have to believe it. You have to know it with your head, and then you have to accept it. You have to lean on it. You have to rest in it. You have it, you have it in your heart. You believe it. That then affects the works of your hands. That then affects the actions that you do. That then affects your habitat. That affects the culture around you. Now, here's the thing that infuriates me. Everyone wants to skip the first step. You are not transformed by the renewing of your heart. You're not transformed by just trying to work up more emotion and crying and acting as though that is the spirit. Those things aren't bad, but those things are not how you're transformed. You're not transformed by the renewing of your hands, the renewing of your actions. You're not transformed by the renewing of your habitat, all right? Some people do that. Let's get out there and change the world for Jesus and help everybody. That lasts for about two years, and then it fizzles out because there's no foundation. You're transformed by the renewing of your mind. It has to start there. That's the foundation. If you don't have the correct theology, you're not going to believe the correct theology. You're not going to do the correct theology. You're not going to transform the world in the correct way. Your acts to help make people's lives better will look just like the lost world does. That's where it has to start. Let me give you some practical examples, okay? Let's say a couple comes into Parkway to meet with one of our elders because they're having conflict in their marriage, okay? And we say, why are you having conflict in their marriage? And they say, well, we're having trouble communicating. That's just a common example. We're having trouble communicating. What nine out of ten, ten churches will do is they'll just give them worldly advice on how to better communicate. But that's not their problem. If we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, it means that they have a theological problem. So if someone sits down with us and they say, we have trouble in our marriage, and we say, why? And they say, well, we have trouble communicating. I'm then going to say, why? Well, we don't get to spend a lot of time together, so we don't have time to communicate. Why don't you get to spend a lot of time together? Well, because my husband's always at work. Husband, why are you always at work? Well, I, I just started a new company and it needs a lot of attention right now. Why did you start a new company? Because I find my identity in my job and not in Jesus. Now, they don't say that last part. That's the part we have to give them. 
But you see, what they thought was just a debate about communication was not about communication. It had a deeper theological issue, and if we don't address that, the marriage never heals. Every problem you have in your life somehow goes back to bad theology. It somehow goes, goes back to sin, either yours or someone else's, and somehow the solution always goes back to Jesus. If I'm meeting with a young woman, let's say a young woman comes up and she says, I'm depressed, okay? I could give her some Freudian advice on how not to, be, uh, not to repress her deep desires and therefore she won't be repressed, but that's not being transformed by the renewing of your mind. So if a woman comes up and she says, I'm depressed, I'm going to say, why are you depressed? Well, because I just, I don't really like me. Why do you not like yourself? Well, because I just look around at other women and I just don't feel beautiful. Why do you look around at other women? Well, because I find my identity in what men think about me and not what God thinks about me and not in Christ. Oh, you see, I thought we were here to talk about your depression, but really here we're to talk about theology. That's really what we're here to talk about. That there is some thinking that you have that is unbiblical, that is leading to all this other pain, and the way that you're going to be transformed, the way that you are going to have freedom in that is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's where it starts. Yes and amen to feelings. Yes and amen to good actions. Yes and amen to doing the right thing when you don't feel like it. Yes and amen to helping other people and trying to transform society. Yes and amen. But if you want that to last more than just your generation, it has to be built upon theological principles. It has to be built upon a renewing of your mind. So... I have another list here that I want to read to you, and all the things in this list are true things. If we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, let me give you some things that you should be thinking about all day. Repeat these things to yourself. Say them aloud if you have to, not in the middle of like a meeting, like a weirdo, but you get it. Be thinking this all the time, okay? So I just le- read a list of lies. Let me read a list of truths. By the way, if you want either of these lists, email me and I'll send them to you. Just listen to these things. This is what you should be telling yourself all day if you're a Christian. Ready? God loves me. God loves me, doesn't just tolerate me, doesn't just save me because he has to, but he loves me. Everything is going to be okay. Everything is going to be okay. Worst case scenario for you if you're a Christian is eternal bliss. That's worst case scenario. Everything is going to be okay. I don't have to carry this burden. That's when I say a lot to myself. I don't have to carry this. I don't have to carry this. I'm not going to hell. I'm not going to hell. If you're a Christian, hell is no longer a reality for you. It's a reality, but it's not a reality for you. God is happy with me. Do you believe that? Not just that he loves you. That sounds generic, that he's happy with you. No matter how much I sin, God's love for me doesn't change. God is not a man that he should change. He is is immutable. He doesn't change. His love for you is based on him, not on you. No matter how much I sin, God's love for me doesn't change. Here's a good one. Jesus is better. You're tempted towards some sin. You're feeling depressed. You don't want to do something. Jesus is better. God will give me all the grace I need to get through each day. Maybe that's what you need to be telling yourself. God will give me all the grace I need just for today. I just have to get to tonight. He'll give me grace. There's new grace in the morning. His mercies are new every morning. It won't always be like this. That's a great thing to tell yourself. Difficult circumstances and sorrows often come in waves. So when you're at the worst part of that, tell yourself, it won't always be like this. It won't always be like this. God's got me out before. He'll get me out again. My life doesn't belong to me. That's a great thing to tell yourself. I'm not the point. I'm not the point. Something happens, you're getting mad at traffic, whatever. I'm not the point. I'm not the point. God will never leave nor forsake me. Tell yourself that. Here's when I tell myself, I don't have to play this mind game. You're wrestling with some issue and it's stressing you out. You don't know what to do. I don't have to play this game. God knows all things. I don't have to know everything. I don't have to play this game. God's promises are true regardless of how much I believe them. God's promises are true regardless 
of how much I believe them. Even if I fall, God will still love me. Even if I fall, God will still love me. How about this one? I'm known, loved, accepted, adopted, and forgiven. I'm known, loved, accepted, adopted, and forgiven. I'm 100% perfectly spotless and clean. I'm not who I used to be. I have new life in Christ. Long-term joy is infinitely better than short-term pleasure. Long-term joy is infinitely better than short-term pleasure. You can't out the cross of Christ. That's what you need to be telling yourself over and over and over again. To take those evil thoughts, get rid of those. Those lead to evil actions. Your actions always follow your thoughts. Do you know why I don't walk off of a building? Because my thoughts tell me that I'm going to fall. Your actions follow your thoughts. So if you're thinking evil things, if you're thinking like the world, you'll do evil things. But instead, if you're being transformed by the renewal of your mind through Scripture, through knowing who God is, through the gospel, through who Christ is, that you're loved, you're forgiven, everything's going to be okay, it leads to righteousness. Verse 2c, let's look at the last section of this text. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's what this text means. The more you think true biblical thoughts, the more you will find your thoughts and God's thoughts lining up. Let me say that again. Here's what this text means. The more you think true biblical thoughts, the more you will find your thoughts and God's thoughts lining up. Now, this text, a lot of people have misinterpreted, especially within the Word of Faith movement and TBN and some of those kind of things. Let me explain what it means to test, to discern what is the will of God, okay? It does not mean that you test God. The Bible's clear that you don't do that. This does not mean that you put out a Gideon's fleece. This does not mean that you ask God questions in your head as if you're not going to sometimes confuse yourself with God. That's not what it means to find God's will here, okay? This passage is actually not about finding God's will as far as what He wants you to do in your day-to-day life, really at all. This passage is about walking in righteousness, that you are to find God's will, which is your holiness. I'll I'll give you an example. Hebrews 5.14, when talking about discerning God's will, says this, But solid food, meaning deep theology, is for the mature, for those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil, okay? So let me explain to you how to make decisions, and then we'll talk about what this passage actually means, okay? Let me give you this four-step thing that you can do if you're trying to figure out what direction you think God is wanting you to go on some situation. You're thinking about taking a new job. You're thinking about moving to another city. You're thinking about buying a new car, whatever it is. Let me give you the four-step process. Ready? Here it is. Number one, what does the Bible say about it? I think God's calling me to open a strip club. Nope. Nope. I think God's calling me to hide some of my tax money from the government. Nope. Okay? What does the Bible say about it? Number two, what do other godly people think about it? The one person you're not allowed to trust is you. The Bible says that all the time. Nobody has lied to you more than you. So ask other godly people what they think about it. Number three, what does the situation dictate? I'm thinking about taking a new job, but let's say it doesn't provide financially for my family. Well, then I'm not called to take it. I'm thinking about moving somewhere, but there's no Bible-centered churches there, so my family's going to wither spiritually. You're not called to do it. And then the fourth one is, what do I want to do? What do I want to do? Now, here's what most people do. They reverse those four. They think, what do I want to do? What does the situation dictate? I may or may not ask anybody, and the Bible probably has nothing to say about it. It's the exact opposite of how we're to make decisions, okay? But here's what I want to say to you. If you're trying to figure out what God wants you to do on some morally neutral issue, He doesn't care. Just pick one and do it to His glory. That's not what this text is about at all. This text is not about finding God's will on some moral issue for your life. Here's what this text is about. Ready? Look at me for this. This text is saying God's will for you is to walk in holiness. He doesn't care which job you take as long as that job leads to holiness. He doesn't care what city you're moving to as long as that move leads to holiness, okay? That's what God wants. God wants your righteousness. 
He doesn't care. He, in fact, the Bible would say things like this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Where does God want me to go to college? He doesn't care. He wants you to go to a place that you're going to get more of Jesus. What job does he want me to take? He doesn't care. He wants you to get a job that you're going to get more of Jesus. That's a great way to make decisions. Which of these decisions will get me more of Jesus? A sinful one will never get you more of Jesus. On morally neutral ones, which one will? Which one will? This text, though, is not talking about that. It's saying the more you practice righteousness, the easier it is for you to know the God who is righteous and to walk in righteousness. That's the point. Okay, let me give you some other passages that talk about the will of God in this way. Ephesians 5, 8 through 11. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Okay, we want to know God's will. What is it? Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Or 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, I love this. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's what God's will is for you, okay? His will is for you to walk in holiness and walk in righteousness. That's what he wants for you. So in wrapping up this sermon today, I'm going to end in the most appropriate way that I can by talking about Navy SEALs. I was listening recently to the Navy SEAL podcast because, you know, why not? And they had a lesson on mental toughness, okay? They had a lesson on mental toughness. Let me tell you why this was interesting to me. The SEAL training that they have to go through, it's called Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training, but, and it is some of the most rigorous military training in the world, okay? 90% of the guys that try to go through it don't make it. 90%. Some get injured, most of whom drop out. 90%. You have to be pretty tough to even get into the program. These are already hard men. These are tough guys, and yet only 10% make it through. They have a 90% attrition rate. Why is that? It's not because these other guys are the most physically tough. It's because they're the most mentally tough. There are Olympic athletes that have enrolled in BUDS and dropped out. There are CrossFit champions that have enrolled in BUDS and dropped out because it's not about physical toughness, it's about mental toughness. So I was listening to this podcast, and this guy was asking this Navy SEAL, what is the difference between the guys that make it through and the guys that can't cut it? And he said this. He said, well, there's a lot of things. He said, here's the main thing. He said, for the guys that make it through, they don't allow a negative thought to complete itself said they do not allow a negative thought to complete itself. They don't allow it to take root. They don't allow that evil thought to grow up. And so the, the guy who was doing the podcast, he said, can you explain that a little bit? And he said, yes. So when you're running and you haven't slept for three days and you're carrying a boat on your head, this thought is what pops into your mind. I can't do this. I'm going to quit. Okay? That thought pops into everyone's head. The kind of guys who quit are the kind of guys that allow that thought to ruminate that allow that thought to keep coming up, that allow it to take root and to grow. So you think, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, I'm tired, you're doing push-ups, I can't do this, I can't do this, you're shaking in the water, I can't do this. And eventually, they ring the bell and they drop out. He said, the guys that make it as they're carrying that boat and their arms are shaking and they're exhausted, that thought still hits them. I can't do this. And they said, before they get to the word this, they stop it and they say, nope, I can do it. I'm tougher than anyone else here, I'm not going to quit. They don't allow that negative thought to complete itself. Because your actions will follow your thinking. If your thinking is like the world, if it's lost, if it's not biblical, you will commit that action. You'll ring out. But if when that evil thought pops into your head, God hates you, you stop, don't allow it to complete it and say, no, God loves me. But you don't feel loved, doesn't matter how I feel. If you will replace that evil thought with that positive thought, if you will not be conformed to the world but transformed by the renewing of your mind, that's how you actually see growth. That's how you actually see growth, okay? Let me pray for us as the volunteers helping serve communion begin to uh, come up here to get ready to pass out the elements. Almighty God, we thank you for grace. We thank you for uh, mercy. We thank you that your word is true regardless of how we feel. We thank you that your word is true regardless of what we think. 
uh, we thank you that your word is just true. I pray that you would help conform our feelings around your word, not the other way around. I pray that you would help us uh, conform our actions and our life around your word. Would you help us? Would you guide us? We love you. We're so thankful for Christ. We thank you that there is one who's done it on our behalf. We bless his name, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.